stressful. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but for a lot of people out there right now, maybe even you, there's a lot of stress going on. It might be physical. It might be financial. It might be spiritual. But we get to come here, amen, in the middle of the week to just cast our cares on Him. Just let everything off. Let off your shoulders. Don't worry about everything you were thinking about, fighting with the kids or the wife on the way here. Just let it go. Amen. And just enter in. Because that's why he's here. That's what he's promised. Amen. So let's sing it one more time. Will I cast all my cares upon you? And I lay all of my burdens, amen, down at your 
time that I don't know just what to do. I will cast all my cares upon you. Change my heart, oh God. Amen. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. Will may I be like you? One more time. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever. my heart, oh God, will may I be like you. You are the you to the service. 
I feel like I've got lots of social distancing over here. Everybody's in the back. Um, but I welcome you to the uh, midweek service. Um, we're going to uh, go before the, uh, the throne. I'm going to ask Brother Andy uh, Irish if he could come and open the service in a word of prayer. And uh, we've got a few prayer requests here. Uh, we want to um, remember everybody that's not here. First off, uh, Brother Jaron's working. Uh, Brother Keith Buchanan's working. We want to remember um, Brother uh, and Sister Smith. want to continue to remember them at home. want to uh, remember Brother Mike Pritchard. He's in Kansas. I want to remember Sister Sarah Buchanan. He's not feeling well. The Harwells, the Happy Harwells, are still in quarantine, so we want to remember them in prayer. I'd ask you just to remember my wife in prayer, who's not feeling well uh, tonight. So if you could remember her, if you have any other unspoken prayer requests, just make it known. Amen. Thankful that there is somewhere where we can go. Amen. We can take our needs to when things feel rough. Amen. Lovely Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, for bringing us here this evening. Lord, as I was reading in my Bible before service, in the Psalms it says that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. Father, the times we live in, we're all oppressed by something, Father. We live in Laodicea, Lord. It just rubs against us the wrong way, Lord, in our minds, Father. Lord, there's so much trouble all around us, Father, and it's good to know that there is a place of refuge, of true refuge, Father. And so, Lord Jesus, and it's not a building or a, uh, a certain place, Father, but it's in You, that refuge. And tonight, Father, we would ask that You would just come. Come and minister the Word to the hearts of the people that will hear it, Father. And those prayer requests that were mentioned, Lord, we ask that you would answer them in your perfect will, Lord Jesus. Those that need healing, Father, I pray that the great physician would draw near and just give that healing touch, Father. And Lord, those that are sick and those that are afflicted in the mind, Father, may you also come and just touch them in their mind, Lord Jesus. And just calm that troubled mind, Father. And Lord, we think of, of Brother Pascal, Father. We would ask that you would intervene on his behalf. And Lord, every prayer that's been uh, sent up to the throne room, Father, we would ask that you would just breathe it into a manifested body of healing, Father. Lord, be with his wife and his son, Lord Jesus, and comfort them. Those that are traveling, Father, surround them and protect them. And Lord, as our pastor stands behind this desk, Father, Lord, it may be his voice that we hear. It may be his body that we see, Father. But let it be the very thought of God tonight, Lord Jesus. And may each and every person get their part. May each and every person get their portion of their word tonight, Father. Lord, open up the eyes and ears of our hearts that we may receive it, Lord. Bless the rest of the song service, the musicians, Lord, the technicians, Father, all that went in to make this service. We'll give you all the glory and the honor. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing just one more song. Need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, right now. 
Amen. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Right now. I lift my hands and bow my knees and worship at your throne I need you Lord yes I need you Lord right now let's sing it we need you Lord well we need you Lord we need you Lord right my hands and bow my knees and worship at your throne as I need you now we need you Lord right now one more time I need you Lord well I need you Lord I need you, Lord, right now. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, right now. I lift my hands and I bow my knees. Oh, and worship at your throne. Cause I need you, Lord. Well, I need you, Lord. Right now. Amen. We need him. Amen. You may have your seats. Turn and wave to those that are around you. Don't touch. Um, we're going to sing, um, we're going to pick the uh, speed up a little bit, uh, sing When We All Get to Heaven. What a day of rejoicing. Do we know that song? We don't know that, Peter? We do. Okay, good. Thank you. It's a little weird for me because uh, I'm so used to being in the sanctuary and looking up at that uh, projector at the back. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. The mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. Oh, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing, we'll shout the victory. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But 
When traveling days they are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. For when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Yes, when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Now onward to the prize before us. Soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of gold. For when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. One more time. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Sing it one more time. Well, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. That was great. That sounded really good. Let's stand. We're going to. As our pastor comes, I'm going to just change the order of the service just a little bit. Um, we're going to sing. Uh, this is your house. This is your house. Father, come and dwell. This is your house of prayer where the lost and the lonely bring their burdens and their cares this is your house this is your house oh come and we are your house, and we are your house. Father, come and dwell. Oh, we are your house. Oh, holy house of Lord, come in. 
One more time. Just close your eyes. Let's just sing it again now. Yes, we are your house. Father, come and dwell. Yes, we are your house. A holy house of Also be considered the temple of the living God. We ask now that you would just come and move among us, Lord, and speak to our hearts in a personal way. Lord, I believe it's your desire to uncover everything that does not belong in our eternal home. And Lord, to help us face it, deal with it, put those things behind us. And Lord, to appropriate the character that fits in a godly kingdom. And now we ask and pray that you would just come, Lord, and just take the bread of life. And, Lord, discern right to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We commit every need to you. We thank you, Lord, for all you have done. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ now that you would take every spirit under your control for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. While you're standing, let's take your Bibles tonight. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 21. Thank you, musicians. That'll be just great. Welcome, all of you, to the house of the Lord uh, tonight. Proverbs, chapter 21. Happy birthday, Macy. How old are you going to be? That How old are you today? Nine years old. Wonderful. God bless you. Step into the waters. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. May the Lord add his blessing. You may be seated tonight. Now, let's just jump right in uh, this evening here. And I appreciate you all being here. It was very... uh, questionable as to whether we were going to be able to have a service tonight because we were uh, standing in water uh, when we came in this afternoon. Brother John Harwell came here earlier this afternoon and uh, one of the pipes down there got loose and so uh, we had a bunch of water in here but uh, got it out. Appreciate all the brothers that came and helped and uh, we got everything dried out and all the chairs put back together and it's quite a quite a different picture. When I came in I was kind of shocked when I came in, but uh, we're glad that we're a- we were able to have service, because we didn't know whether we were going to have uh, restrooms and all of that uh, this evening here, so we're grateful for, for that help. Also, too, let me give you a couple of prayer requests. Now, I'd like to preamble the prayer requests and say this, that our song leader generally gives prayer requests. The prayer requests that uh, I give the, prayer re- prayer, uh, the song leaders are generally um, 
names that uh, maybe someone's not feeling well or uh, we've already we've already had the prayer request explained to us. Uh, they're not secondary prayer requests. I don't want anybody to think that they're lesser prayer requests than the prayer requests I give. But sometimes people will actually ask me, and that's fine. They'll say, Brother Barry, would you explain this to the people? Or sometimes it's dynamic, meaning that it changes right up to the time I stand here. So they're texting me or calling me, and there's more information to it. And um, uh, I, I, in, in no way do we, and we were talking about this before service here, but in no way are they secondary. Any prayer request that's brought to us is important. And we need to pray about all of them. And as a matter of fact, I think it's a great thing, because I've had some of the people here done this, and I've done it myself, after service is over, take all those prayer requests and bring them home and pray about them because uh, they are legitimate needs. If somebody comes to the Bride of Christ and asks for prayer, to me that's something we should take seriously. No matter if it's a little one or a larger one, it doesn't really matter. But uh, some of them are, require a little explanation. All right, So that's the preamble, that's, and that's the only reason. And I wanted to say this, Brother Mike Holloway was in contact with me this afternoon. He's feeling much better since he's got out of the hospital. He's passed. Uh, he was basically asymptomatic uh, when it came to the virus. And so the doctors kind of didn't know what to do with him, whether to you know, perform the surgery or send him home. But they did decide to send him home, let him rest, let him get uh, back on his feet again. And then they're going to do the valve surgery. When they did the heart cath, there was no problems uh, he came through that with flying colors, and, and there was no uh, issues at all. And so he's at home now and uh, recuperating. He really appreciates the, uh, the concern, the prayers that, that we, uh, people have shown. And, uh, you know, Brother Mike is a traveling evangelist and, and uh, spends a lot of time on the road. And so uh, I, I believe it's right for us to help evangelists when they're in a spot like that. And uh, with Brother Mike, you know, we were very supportive and uh, because I, I, I really do appreciate his ministry and uh, the work that he does. Uh, we've also been asked to remember Brother Paula Fontaine, uh, who has the virus, and his church. They're shut down uh, pretty solid there, and uh, they were just, uh, they never had anything last week, and then I believe tonight they're doing a uh, broadcast. Uh, so he asked us to remember him in prayer. They've had some uh, rough days, and we know how that feels. Well, I wanted to give you an update on Brother Joe. This afternoon at 5 p.m., they took out the ventilator from Brother Joe. Uh, took a little, took several attempts, but they got it out, and he's doing well. They said today, they told Sister Lisa that in a day or two, she could probably FaceTime with him. But right now, he would try to talk, and they said they don't want him to do that. They want them to adjust to life without the, the tube in there. Now, I don't know how you feel. I think it's miraculous. I mean, listen, I, I follow this stuff pretty closely. When people are that sick, and I was in contact with the ICU people, the, the nurses there, and I talked to them about the numbers and about the, the you know, you ask somebody how, you, how they're in the hospital, how you feel. They say, well, was, same as yesterday. Uh, yesterday they might have been dying, you know, and, and you get the impression, well, everything is okay. But the numbers tell a little bit of a different story. And I follow those numbers pretty closely. And 
Let me tell you, Brother Joe was, was in serious condition. He really was. And, uh, you know, forgive me if I send out lots of information and bombard you with information about people so you'll pray. But let me tell you, I think it's prayer that's pulled him back from the brink of this uh, catastrophe. And, and uh, Lord willing, we'll get him back on his feet and back home again. Uh, it's, it's been a hard road, difficult road. He's probably going to have to go to therapy to get some of his strength back and uh, then readjust back into things. But uh, I'm, I'm very grateful and uh, thankful uh, to the Lord for what he's done. And that's the way we prayed. We just wanted him to come back home and uh, to be restored again. So uh, I'm very thankful for God's mercy in that case. And I will tell you that Sister Lisa is also very thankful as well for all that's been done. So we appreciate that. All right, let's just jump in and uh, do this. And uh, we'll connect last Wednesday night and talk a little bit uh, this, this evening. Uh, we'll connect this evening or the first part with last Wednesday night. And then I'm going to make a quantum leap, okay, because I, I wanted to use this metaphor uh, of the crossing of, of Jordan to transition between, uh, you know, the, uh, the children of Israel being on one side. They were, uh, they were in, in a sense, on that march for 40 years around, and then all of a sudden God changes it and uh, changed the order of things, and then they went into the promised land. They went in a specific way. They went and crossed into the promised land a very specific way. And uh, God told them three things. He said, uh, through Joshua, he said, watch the word. When they carry that ark on the shoulders of the Levites, watch that and let it go forward. Put a space between it and you. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go out in the waters. And the waters are going to part. And you pass right by that. Joshua was among them. But keep your eye on the word. Keep your eye on that ark. Because you don't want to get in the river before the ark. And you don't want to go a mile downstream because you think it's shallower and cross there. You go where the word goes. That's the idea. And this is very important. It's more important now to us than ever before. You've heard all your Christian life, ever since you came in contact with the message, uh, that we stay with the Word. I will tell you something. Today, the Holy Spirit, I believe, has taken a highlighter and highlighting that phrase and wants you to understand you've got to stay with the Word. Secondly, we sanctify ourselves. That's what Joshua told the people. Sanctify yourselves. Don't bring anything over there that doesn't belong. So the time of purging, the time of uh, simplifying, the time of ridding things out of your life is now, before we cross over on the other side. There are things that the Holy Spirit definitely doesn't want over there. But it's an easy thing to say, okay, I'll take the... Uh, you know, I'll take the magazine or I'll take, uh, you know, the CD and I'll throw that away. It's an easy thing to take something that is out from you and dispose of it. It's a different thing to take something that's here and dispose of it. And that's the greater challenge. That's the harder work to do that. But God does not want you to take anything like an attitude or, uh, you know, a complex or something that, uh, you know, would, would stay with you over time and eternity. God does not want you to take that. So he's digging and rooting and uncovering and he's performing surgery after surgery and dealing with our hearts in a very specific way. So get ready for the Holy Spirit to look deep into your heart because that's really what he wants to do. Thirdly, you've got to be committed. You've got to step into the waters. You've got, to be, you've got to get ready to go. And you know what? It's no good for everybody else to go for you. You've got to go. 
You gotta, you gotta be committed, uh, to the process. You gotta believe that good things are on the other side. You got to, uh, have in your heart that there ain't no way I'm staying. There's no, doesn't matter what everybody, anybody else does. I'm going. Because I believe this is God's, uh, God's program. I believe my destiny is on the other side. God's brought me this far, but not to leave me here. God's brought me this far to take me all the way home, and I'm committed. I'm gonna go. So when the waters part, I'm there. And I'm all in. And that's the attitude you should have. It's just like Joshua, uh, you know, we read on Sunday that when Joshua, uh, you know, came into the promised land and looked for his mountain, you know, he was, he, he had wholly followed the Lord. He was, uh, completely committed, uh, to the promise that God had given him. And, and he reminded Joshua of that and, uh, had the right to claim the la- his land based on the promise that God had given. We are not claiming our place, our rightful place on the other side of the river because of what we've done. We're claiming it because God has given it to us, right? God has made that promise. And so it's not our merit that's going to get us there. It's not our merit that we hold in front of us. It's His grace. And we want Him to look at us through the blood of Calvary's cross. So therefore, here's the principle. Uh, now today, Brother Branham said, we look over our denominational churches, and churches had truth and rejected it. They got lukewarm with it, and God spewed them from his mouth. That's exactly according to Scripture. You can't make the Scriptures lie. They're going to be truthful always. The only thing you want to be sure you don't do is to take the Scripture and line Scripture up to your thought, but line yourself up to the Scripture. And everybody should say, Amen. Then you're running with God. You want to be running with God at this point. And the way to do it is to line your life up with the Word of God and not try to make the Scripture compromise with your view. In reality, and without offense, in reality, your view doesn't matter. Your view is a distant second compared to God's view, God's thoughts, God's will. His will is primary and His Word is the absolute. So don't try to make the Scriptures say what you want them to say or interpret them in a spirit of convenience. You want to make sure that you line yourself up with the Scripture and then you're running with God. No matter how much you have to cut away or lay aside, line up with that. All right? So we've gone through that. Uh, that's, that's pretty important. Now, all right, now here's where I want you to stay with me now. The moment that we get off this process, the moment that we uh, get away from this idea of keeping our eye on the ark and, and being sanctified and being totally committed, uh, then, you, then you all of a sudden you're, you're out of harmony with God. All of a sudden things don't work right. All of a sudden now you're pressing, you're trying to make something happen. And it is because, somehow or another, we've gotten away from God's way or God's uh, program. And everything works. Everything works right when you're in God's will. I, 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 want you to, I want you to think about this part. The enemy works overtime to guide you away from God's program through deceit, through smoke screens, through subtility, through lies. The devil will try to influence you away from God's program all the time. And he cannot take away your eternal life, but he can distract you from God's program. So think of it this way. If this was the path that the children of Israel had to uh, cross the Jordan River, if this was the location right here, uh, Satan, uh, Satan can't prevent you from going over, but he may say, you know what, if you adjusted yourself at least you know, five feet this way, it would be a better, better crossing for you. 
He's not trying to tell you not to cross. Because if you're ordained to cross the river, you're going to do it. But he'll try to distract you and get you off God's provided way. Right? He'll, he'll try to distract you. And I'm just using this metaphorically. But he'll just try to get you off the mark a little bit in whatever way he can. So Haggai says it this way. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but are not filled with drink. In other words, it's not that the provisions are not there. They are. But you know what? You can't make it work. You can't make it satisfying. You can't make it successful. And he says, ye clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages uh, to put it into a bag with holes. Anybody know what it feels like to put money in a bag with holes? We all do. And this is what Haggai is saying, that, you know, the whole process here of living outside of harmony with God is nothing but frustrating. Because you can't make it successful. You can't make it work. You can't uh, derive the blessing. Even though all the things that you need in life are right there. You can put all the clothes on, all the blankets on, and you never get warm. That's a terrible feeling whenever you have that. Or to be earning and working hard, and then at the end of the month or the end of the year, there's just nothing, nothing there really uh, that, that you can put your finger on. It's all gone. And, and when we get out of harmony with God, and, and Satan works at that over time, uh, and he works at it over time, then let me tell you, there is nothing but frustration that's in the pathway. God doesn't want you to experience that. God doesn't want you to feel that way. So, <clears throat> the bigger issues that we have to deal with involve, I think, and, and the more I see as where we're going in this life and in this world, it's really important for we as believers to have a rest and a trust in what God is doing. To have a rest and a trust, no matter what's happening around us, to be able to look at all of the circumstances in this world and say, I see the crazy things that are happening, and I see the world falling apart. I mean, it's got, there's no more stability left. There's nothing sacred anymore. There's nothing normal, sort of, anymore. But you know what? I trust God anyway. I'm resting in his promise. Now, it's very easy to say that. But the idea is that, uh, and, and here's, where, here's where I want you to, to think now. The idea is to realize that I am really not in control of much that happens. But God is. Now, <clears throat> I'm choosing my words carefully here because this idea of control is something that's really important to God. We'll see it here now. God never wants you to come under the control of the wrong power. As in God's view, there are only two. God's power and the other power, right? God never wants you to fall out of uh, sync with him because the moment you do, you come under the influence of someone else. And God does not want that for your life. We read this last week, Wednesday night. Ecclesiastes 1, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
Sometimes people can innocently get distracted into certain things. Like, the Bible doesn't say anything about Internet pornography, but this principle is still true. Yet you can get caught up in something and feel like, well, I'll stop when I get enough. And the Bible assures us your eye is never satisfied with the seeing. So there are other, and we're not just talking about uh, Internet pornography for young men or, or boys. We're, we're talking about whatever it is that distracts or appeals to a person that pulls them seemingly endlessly into a cycle of uh, what we know now is like social media or, you know, the Internet and everything else. I mean, it, it is truly a way of life. And I'm not here to slam things. I'm just saying this, that sometimes we can get distracted uh, easily, especially in a time like we're living in, because we don't have as much human interaction. A lot of our, a lot of our interaction is by a phone, right? It's by, it's by the devices that we have. And so we're either emailing or texting or we're private messaging or whatever else. And a lot of our communication is like that. We as human beings, we are, we are not uh, isolated people. We are people who like to communicate. We, we, we care about other people. We want to know what they're doing. We communicate among the church people here, and we do that a lot. And uh, now, you know, the means are there for us to know everything about everyone anywhere in the world all times, right? And... Solomon is simply giving us a principle that, you know what, that, that, whole, that whole part of a human being is never satisfied. You, you're, you're never really satisfied uh, with just a little bit of information. There's always more to be known, more people to communicate with, more things to say, right? Are we okay? Some of you are looking at me like this. Galatians 6 and 7, Paul writes, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That applies to good things, that applies to negative things as well. Paul would never have included that if you couldn't do that. But you will reap what you sow. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Paul says these, as we read last Wednesday night, these are the things that we have taught you by our epistle. We have taught you, uh, you know, in service. And you, you know uh, the conduct of a Christian. You know the walk of a Christian. And that is the will of God, that you want to abstain from certain things and you want to uh, walk, uh, walk this way. So there is a way not to walk and there is a way to walk. And that's simply what he's saying. And Paul would not be warning the early church there if it was not possible for you to get uh, caught up in uh, this desperate uh, urge to get married because you finally, you know, you're 18. And a lot of that, let's be honest, a lot of that comes from the influence of the world around you. All right, stop. This is where rest and trust come in. Because if we really trust God, if we really rest in Him, then we believe that somehow or another God's got a plan. He's got an ordained walk for me in this life. And you know what? If it doesn't, if it doesn't 
work itself out the way I thought it should, I still am willing to accept God's will for my life because it's God's will. And he's the one who's in control. So I may not be married until I'm 19, but you know what? That's not so bad. I can rest in that. Because if we don't trust God, if we don't rest in him, we can fall into traps that Satan carefully crafts for every believer. He watches you. He studies you and tries to find your weak areas. So therefore, Paul says, let's, if you don't mind, let's go to Romans 6 here and, and look just at this passage. And I'll, we'll just visit it here briefly, Romans chapter 6, if you don't mind. And I would assume that believers wouldn't mind looking in the Bible in a Bible study to read the word. Romans 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Stop. You're going to be ruled over by one or the other. You're going to be ruled over by the Holy Spirit or the other. Right? There's not five or six different powers at work in the world. There's only two. And so you're going to fall under the reign of one or the other. So Paul is advising us, he is, he is admonishing us that we should not, we should not let sin reign over us. 13, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield your, yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of, unrighteousness to, of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For sin shall not, but sin could. Or we say it this way, sin did. I, I, I'll, that's, that's my testimony. Sin reigned over me. Satan drove me all over the place, looking for peace and happiness and everything else. So I tried everything I could that I assumed would give me satisfaction and peace and something real in life. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Who's the you he's talking about? He's talking about believers. He's talking about people who've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And if you don't believe that, go back to verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. That's a believer, isn't it? Someone who's dead to the world, dead to Satan, dead to that first nature, and now he's alive in Christ. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under, under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid... Do we say, it doesn't matter how fast I drive? Do we say, it doesn't matter how, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm gonna, I need to pay my taxes because I'm under grace? I don't feel like I need to apologize because, you know what, I'm forgiven, they're forgiven, everybody's forgiven, it's all right. Mm, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Here's where the free moral agency comes in, where you choose to yield to one side or the other, one influence or the other, one power or the other. All I'm saying to you is this, is that if we are the people who are crossing over into the millennium, we are the ones crossing over into the wedding supper in the millennium, we're going to move to that dimension without death. God does not want you to have any yielding in you to the powers of darkness. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with here this evening. But God be thanked 
that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. But God be thanked. How many of you are thankful that ye were the servants of sin? 18. Being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. See? You're under something. Even if you're saved, and he whom the Son sets free is free indeed, you're still under the power of the Holy Spirit. You're under one or the other. And if you're not under his control, you've yielded control to someone else. And there is only one other power, and that's Satan's power. Right? So you don't want to be under the wrong thing. I speak after the manner of men because of your weakness. The weaknesses in your flesh. The infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so yield your members servants of, uh, to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Doesn't it sound a little bit like he's getting the people ready to cross the river? Right? Keep your eyes on the Word. The Word is, is he, hey, Jesus Christ has set you free. Holiness is characteristic of the people of God. Now, believe that, step out into the waters. Now let's go. Same kind of idea, right? Because that is the idea. That's the program. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become the servants of God. See, you're not free to do what you want. You're a servant of God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God does not want you to come into bondage to the wrong thing. He wants you to submit your life to him. And I'll tell you what, being under his control is the best kind of control you can have in your life. Being under his control is the best kind of control that you can have in your life. And having the control of the Holy Spirit in your life will correct you even on things that are unjust. So when people say things about you or people treat you unjustly or when you feel betrayed or when you feel criticized or whatever else... Brother Branham comes along and he says, don't say anything evil about Christians. I read this last Wednesday night. Don't try to harm Christians because you'll reap what you sow every time. You can harm another Christian in your conversation. You can harm another Christian in your preaching. You can harm other Christians in what you say and what you put out there on uh, maybe social media or something else. You can harm other Christians. Do you believe that? (laughs) I've seen some doozies. David said... Because you'll reap what you sow every time. David said, touch down mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. He said, don't say nothing about Christians. If anyone had a right to get even, it would have been David. Because David was anointed to be a king. And here was a king who was already dethroned, but never knew it. uh, Still reigning over Israel and spending the resources of the nation chasing somebody who he couldn't kill. Trying to destroy somebody who he couldn't destroy. And so... David learned this principle, touched on mine anointed, and he said, maybe some of them don't live just right or do just right, but that's God's child. So let the Father take care of his own. You are not in control. Are we all right? So, let's go to Isaiah chapter 45. I don't have all of it on the board here, but here's where you're going to need to look at One or two scriptures with me. Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah deals a lot with this kind of an idea here. Let me explain it first. 
This is a whole chapter, a whole section of the book of Isaiah that is written to Cyrus. This happened years and years and years before Cyrus came on the scene. Cyrus was the one, you remember, who sent Nehemiah and Ezra back to Jerusalem to restore the city, right? And he was a a king that God could use. He's not even around yet, and Isaiah is prophesying about Cyrus. He's speaking about Cyrus by name, even before he's around. And he's telling prophetically what Cyrus is actually going to do. But he's a king. Now, I don't know whether you... Uh, for those of you maybe that haven't seen the Crown series, um, kings and queens, monarchs, have a funny, some of them have a funny attitude about their, immor- their mortality. Uh, if, if, you, if you research this, if you, if you read about this, many uh, queens and kings in the world feel like they are divinely appointed. That God actually brought them into the earth because they are to do a function that ordinary commoners could not do. And they actually do, and this is not just a theory, they actually do believe that they are placed there by God. And they are, in a sense, above everybody else just by virtue of the fact that, hey, I'm the king and I'm the queen. And we are not like ordinary people. And they run their lives and their personal lives With that always in mind, yeah, that applies to everybody else. But you know what? We're not born for that. So in other words, it's very easy for a king and a queen to feel like they have a different set of rules. And they have a different bar raised at a different height for everybody else. They are essentially, uh, they feel like they deserve certain pleasures and certain benefits because they are the king and the queen. And they were born for this. They have... Uh, for some of them, it's, it can be a real attitude and it can be a real problem. For some of them, they just kind of accept that because they've been taught it from a childhood, from their childhood, and they roll on and it doesn't become a stumbling block. I say that because God wants Cyrus to know something even before Cyrus is around. Cyrus is the only non-Jew in history who was ever called a shepherd of Israel. But he's referred to that in Isaiah chapter 44, just before we get to 45, obviously, because 44 comes before 45. It says in verse 28, that's thus that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy fountain shall be foundation shall be laid. So. God is saying this about Cyrus's role even before Cyrus is around. And you're going to be like a shepherd. You're not a Jew. You're not a king of Israel. But I'm going to call you a shepherd here because I'm I'm going to cause you to do something to look after my flock. Okay? This is really an extraordinary thing. And so this is the building of the second temple. Now, in verse 1 of 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. This is, Thus saith the Lord to Cyrus. Okay? The whole chapter here is to Cyrus. 
whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him two leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and under the bars of iron. And in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. Four, for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name, Cyrus. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. He's not a believer. He doesn't trust in the living God like Israel would. And though you don't even know me, I've called you by name, and I've given you a role as shepherd, and I've got a job for you to do, and you're going to do it because, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light. I create darkness, I make peace and create evil, I, the Lord, do all of these things. That shocks some people, the way that that's phrased here. But let me tell you what that word evil means. When God said to Cyrus, and I created the evil, it literally means in the Hebrew language, I allowed evil to exist. The fruits of sin are sorrow and adversity and wretchedness and sadness and calamity. And I allowed that to exist in the world because I am the Savior and I am the joy giver and I am the peace giver and I am all of that. And I allowed all of that to be in the world so that I could display my attributes to lift men out of their sorrow and lift men out of their adversity. Somebody say amen. I am the Savior who is able to take man out of his wretchedness and to be able to set him up on a rock. So when it says that I created evil, God did not create, uh, He did not create murder. Okay? God didn't sit there and say, let there be murder. But He allowed it to remain in the world so that He could destroy the spirit of a murderer and allow a man to come under the blood of Jesus Christ and be cleansed from that and to be able to go free from his sin. Okay? So that's what he says. Uh, he says, I form the light. I do all of them. And verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. And verse 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Remember, who is he saying all this to? Somebody say it. Cyrus. Why is he saying it to Cyrus? Because he's a king. And kings think, I'm above the law. I'm not like ordinary mortals. God says, I got news for you. You are. And you know what? I'm the God of the earth. I'm the God of mankind. I'm the God of everybody and everything. And you know what, Cyrus? You're going to be a tool in my hand. Even though you don't know me, I've got a job for you to do. You don't even exist, but I've got a job for you to do. And I'm going to refer to you as a shepherd because that's kind of like what you're going to do. But I want you to remember, Cyrus, that in all of your life and in all your exploits and everything you do, you're not the one who's in control. I am. And I am the one who holds the power. And I'm the one who gave you the power that you have. Wow. Sounds like God's a controller. Yes. He is. Some of you 
looking, looking at me funny. That's all right. <clears throat> it is a fact that God is in control and God never loses control. That is a fact. Proverbs 21.1, the king is in the heart of the uh, hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Solomon, guess what Solomon was? A king, right? And Solomon knew that, you know what? His life was in the hands of God. His life was under the control of God. And God will turn things whatever way he wants to turn them. Job 38, verse 4. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or laid the cornerstone thereof? Who started all this in the first place? Uh, Are you the creation going to tell the Creator a better way to do things? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Show me where the anchor is. And then show me who fastened the anchor in the first place. And, and he, wants, he wants, this is not disrespectful to Job, but it's really important for every one of us to understand that God is in control and that God is a controller. Not a controller in a bad way, because immediately when I said that word, uh, some of you went, oh, whoa, Brother Bear is using a bad word. Just like one time, I think I told you, we had visitors come to our house and a little boy ran into my office And uh, he said, whatever is a bad word. I said, really? He said, yeah, whatever. And and whatever is not a bad word, but when you use it and your mother says, all right, I need you to clean your room, whatever. And that's what he was referring to. So when I say controller, we need to learn a little bit, and that's why you're here tonight, because we need to learn a little bit about this word here. There are three types of control. And here they are. And I want to just introduce these to you tonight because uh, how we deal with this is going to be real interesting. Because I'm learning a lot as I look at this. The first type of control is the divine kind. God's in control of everything. Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. God has thought of everything, he's set in motion everything, and he fulfills everything. He loses nothing. He never loses control. So the first type of control is this, is the divine kind where God is in control of everything. Now, you can rebel against God, and the way of a rebel is is hard. The way of a transgressor is hard. God loses nothing. The second type of control is self-control. Self-control is good. Self-control is the kind of discipline we all need to stick to the budget, to stick to the diet, to stick to the rules. The third type is an unhealthy control. That's where it gets interesting. There's two types of control that are allowable through the gates of eternity. There's one that's not. Guess which one doesn't get to go. Unhealthy control is such a sly creature that it's going to take us a little work to even uncover it. But i got a couple of tricks for you. i got a couple of keys for you to figure it out. 
Brother Ram says in 1958, this is the divine kind, right? Number one. Oh, you want him to be your savior, and he wants to be your Lord. Lord. Lord is rulership. He wants to be your ruler, not just your savior only. Yes, I accept that Jesus died for me on Calvary's cross, but I don't want the Holy Spirit to direct my life. I want to control what I do. And you want him as a savior, but what about him being your Lord that will control you? This is Brother Branham now. And you know what? Uh, hey, hello? We're not talking to Cyrus anymore. Now we're talking to you. But what about being your Lord that will control you? Control your emotions. Control your thinking. Control every fiber of you. That you could say like the man years ago who let him in, Paul, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let him in in that way to be ruler and Lord over you. Hey, we could stop right here. And if we prayed that prayer together, you would have been benefited to come to church tonight. Because you are recommitting your life to, to Christ as not only Savior, but Lord as well. But I will say this to you tonight, and that's why we're going to go a little longer. Because it's easy to say, yes, Lord, I want you to rule over my life. It's a little different to actually play that out. It's a, little, it's a little more challenging for you to look at yourself and say, is the Lord ruling in this part of my life? In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and God spake all these words, saying, all right, Moses, here, write this down. Matter of fact, here, Moses, don't write this down. I'll write it down. I'll write it down in stone, and I'll give it to you on stone tablets that you can take with you forever, Okay? Because I don't want you to forget this. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because there really is only one true God. There's one true and living God. There's not a dozen. And the only other thing you need to be concerned about is that other power that's out there. But there's only one God. Now, stop for a minute. In this culture... In this season where Moses actually got these commandments written in stone, the people around Israel believed in all kinds of gods. They had, um, you know, gods of Moloch and all the other ones that are listed in the Old Testament that we've run into. Baal was a god. Uh, you know, if you go to India today, they say, there's, uh, uh, they say there's like three gods for every person in India. And... There's a billion, that's a B, billion people in India, right? There's a lot. I, wa I watched a guy, I watched a guy who uh, was going down the street with a wheelbarrow, and he had a little temple built, a little old, uh, like a Buddhist-looking temple, and he had three or four or five monkeys that were in the wheelbarrow and on his back, and, and these were all, uh, this, was, this was his religion. This was, uh, you know, the, the monkey temple that he carried around with him. There are great big monkey temples as well with bigger monkeys in them, but this guy had his own. He was a, maybe he was a traveling evangelist, I don't know. And, uh, but he, he was rolling around the streets, and he had a, you know, naturally, he must have been an evangelist because he had a tin cup for an offering, and and uh, sorry, I didn't mean that for the evangelists, but uh, was, I mean, it's, in that culture, there was lots of gods. But you have to understand that the way people looked at gods back then was that gods enacted punishment and judgment on people. Gods were to be feared. Gods were to be someone to be afraid of. 
They were not to be respected or loved. They were not, they were not instruments of mercy. They were more instruments of judgment, and they consumed everything you had. Took your daughters in temple prostitution, or they took your money, or they took your blood, or whatever else. Gods were not your friends back then. And all of a sudden, here shows up Israel in the promised land, and they're talking about God, a God we love, a God we serve, a God we're proud to identify with. This was very unique in this culture that God showed up in, in Moses' time. This is not the way people thought of gods. This was, you know, when they heard about, uh, the, the, when the people out in, in Israel heard about Jericho falling down, or they heard the stories of Dathan and Kor being swallowed up in the earth. They said, ah, now that's, he's just like all the other gods, because all he does is judge. But you had to know the back story, right? Right? God wasn't just picking on Dathan and Korah that day because they didn't give enough of the tithe box. You've got to know the back story. Right? God loved his people. Showed that all over the place. But he wanted them to know, I'm the only true God that there is, and I want to be the only God you have. Thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, uh, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So God makes this very clear in the very beginning to Moses here. I am, I am God. Now I don't want you to have any others. And I'm going to look. I don't want you to have sports gods. I don't want you to have money gods. I don't want you to have pride gods. Nothing. There's one God, and I want you to serve that one God. And I don't want you to have anything between me and you. So I want to be your God. Brother Branham said it this way, I will restore unto you, saith the Lord, 1954, be thou plucked up and cast over here. He's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it did it. If, Moses, if Adam said that to a tree, be plucked up and cast over. It did it. The second Adam proved it could be done. Right? Jesus could curse a tree. Jesus could speak a storm out of existence. Right? The first Adam did it. The second Adam proved it could be done. Because none of us were around to see the first Adam do it. But we did have witnesses of the second Adam doing it. You following? You're called Gospels. He controlled all nature. It was given unto Adam's hands to control all nature. Watch. And when Adam's redeemed back again to God the way he should be and have faith in God, he will do it again. Because there is a dominion that was given to Adam that he lost in the fall, but that dominion is to be restored. Praise God. You can actually now have a certain amount of dominion over the world you live in now. You can speak certain things and they happen. You can speak criticism in your house and you'll get an effect. You can speak love in your house and you'll have an effect also. Sure. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, 1958. God is so good to you people, and you people uh, who are full gospel and believe all the Bible. God has done so many miracles and done so many things for you. He's been so good, but you don't recognize it. Wake up, open your eyes. He's talking to a group out. He's standing, knocking, trying to get in to control you, 
to make you what you should be. To take away the world from you and to make you new creatures of his. That's why he's given you the things he has given you. In some cases, that's why God's given you the wife he's given you. Huh? In some cases, that's why he's given you the husband he's given you. Huh? In some cases, he hasn't given you a husband or a wife. <laughs> In some cases, that's why he's given you the children you have. Because I will guarantee you just about in every family, there is one child that will keep you on your knees all the time. Hmm. I know. God knows what you have need of. And let me tell you, God loves you enough to control you, to take away things out of the world from you. Why? Not just to make you a better American, but to make you a citizen that fits into the kingdom you're going to. Right? So God's in the process of bringing you to a place of maturity to get you fit for the kingdom you're going into. Hey, remember what Joshua told the people? Keep your eyes on the word. Be sanctified and be all in. Here's Brother Branham saying the same thing. That God is actually knocking, trying to control you, not to take away your joy, but to make you what you should be. And take away the world from you. As a matter of fact, he's not trying to take away your joy. He's trying to make you the kind of a person that will enjoy eternity for eternity. He does that because he loves you. Stay with me. Not going to be much longer. The second type of control is this thing called self-control. That's where Paul says in Galatians 5, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Temperance is self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh which, with all the affections and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, we shall also walk in the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit actually produces a sense of self-control in all of us. Or at least it should if you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let me give you an example here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body. I discipline myself like an athlete. Remember, that's the analogy he's using here of one of an athlete. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So I'm going to discipline myself so that I'm not affected, for instance, in my ministry by money. I'm not going to let money pull me down. I'm not going to let... Uh, now, he's talking about athletics here, and that's, the, that's the, the, the example that he's given to us. But in ministry, as Paul is saying to us, you have to be disciplined to not let certain things drag you down. Like uh, an athlete who's going to run the big race tomorrow morning, he doesn't want to stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning partying. He's got to get under his body and say, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. I know I've got to, I've got to get my rest, and I've got to be ready to go at 6 o'clock in the morning and, and uh, you know, be ready to have breakfast and run the race and so forth. I've got to do that. Well, you know, no one's going to come along and say, okay, here you go. Let's get in the bed. Come on, I'll tuck you in. There's a self-discipline that needs to take place because there's going to come a time when you're not going to have a discipliner to do things for you and tell you where to go. You, we, we train our kids, we train our young people to grow up 
and be independent, Christian, young ladies and gentlemen. And one of the things we want to see in them is the ability for them to live right without mom and dad trailing them and having to watch over them 24 hours of the day. We want, we want, what's your name? Manual. We want a manual to live as a real young man of God, no matter where he is and no matter where life takes him. And no matter what he's involved in, he's going to act like a Christian. You know what? That's a victory for a set of parents. I told him a little while ago that you know, we're, I'm going to go back to Africa, Lord willing, as soon as I can get out. And uh, I, I, want a, I want a cameraman. So I told him, I said, get your passport and blow the dust off it and we'll get him, uh, we'll get him over there. Well, you know, there's a certain amount of independence that he'd have being that far away from mom and dad, right? And... I'm not going to chase them around and say, change your socks. Do you change your socks? I'm not going to do that. So there's a certain discipline that he's got to exert himself. And there's a certain freedom. Because, you know, when you get your license and, you, you know, you, you, you got freedom and you got a job and you got different things. Did you get the job? Did you? You did. Wow. Where are you working? Chick-fil-A. Yeah. All right, buddy. I'm a red. Um, if you... If all of a sudden you're, you're, you're walking towards independence, we want him to handle that independence maturely. Paul is saying the same thing, that there's an independence that we need to exercise. Now let me give you a little example. This is a funny example. Let me give you a little example here. God trains us for the job that we're doing. I don't know how you got trained to work at Chick-fil-A, but... God trains us for the work that we're going to do. And I remember, uh, you know, like when it, when it comes to, for instance, the work that we do for Vision Books. I don't, don't misinterpret what I'm going to tell you. We do the work for, for Vision Books and providing materials for believers all over the world. It's not just a process of printing books. If we needed to just print materials and get them out there, um, we could hire anybody to do that. We could go just go to a secular printing company and just give them a bunch of money and say, hey, print all these books and send them out. But that's really not ministry. That's just a contract agreement that you've got with a company. But let me tell you something. The, the burden to help people get the message is a result of being with the people over there and talking with them and realizing this is the need they have. And so the, the, the meeting of that need comes from connecting with their heart and being able to supply them with materials that they need. And it's not just, all right, you know, here's a thousand books, but it's like, hey, let's pray over these books because now these books are going to influence ministers and those ministers are going to influence people. And so you're actually ministering to people when you know what the need really is and then you're combining that with the material you can give them and ministering to them. You know, you've given them a piece of your heart. I sat with, for years, Peter will tell you, traveled with me, and we sat, we'd sit for hours and hours, years and years, uh, with Brother Lonnie Jenkins and different ones in foreign countries, and we'd sit there and talk to the ministers, and they'd bring their uh, particular problems. And we didn't go over there just to preach, and we didn't go over there just to bring money for sound systems, and we didn't go over there just to travel. We went over there to sit with the people and kind of get to know them and touch their heart and, and uh, you know, uh, relate with them and pray with them and weep 
sleep with them and, uh, you know, minister to them. And then we come home and say, hey, we need money to do this. It's not just, not just money for material, because if it was just that, we could easily get that and send it over to them. But it's like, hey, I know their cry. I know the need. And so let's get what we have need of in material and let's bring all this together. So it's not just taking it here and putting it over there. It's like you're bringing it together and saying, now, now we're, we're able to, to minister to them from our heart. Let me tell you something. There was somebody here in this church who's here tonight, and, and uh, I was told this by somebody who's not in church tonight, uh, was sick, and they said that uh, somebody in the church went to visit somebody who was not in our assembly, a believer, not in our assembly, but affected by the virus, brought him soup and sat down and visited for an hour with that person, and at the end of that, got up and gave her, it was her, her, and her, and gave her a big hug. And the sister said, they both had had the virus, so we're all right, okay? And this, this sister told somebody else in my church who told me on the phone Monday, they said, you have no idea how that hug affected that person because they hadn't touched somebody like that in a year because of the virus. And this sister from our church, who who went to visit this person, not because they're in our church, but because this is someone in need. Folks, this is ministry. This is what ministry is. You're connecting with the heart of that person to know what the need is, and then actually going there to physically do it. And to embrace that person and pray with them and tell them that they love them and so forth. That person was moved by that action. To me, that's ministry. That's when we put feet on, rather, I mean, it's okay to say, hey, we'd be praying for you. That's all right. We all do that. That's all right. But sometimes there's a little bit more effort required to where I go and sit with you and pray with you and hold your hand or bring a bowl of soup or something else. And I'm not saying that praying for somebody is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And we should do that anyway. Right? We should do that anyway. But you know what? You're a part of the body. And, and there are times when you're going to need that as much as they're going to need that. And it's amazing the testimonies that have come back to me of people in this assembly who have gone to others who are in need and they've ministered to them. It doesn't just happen. It happens because, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice my time. I'm going to bring myself into subjection to do the will of God because I'm a Christian. And I'm not going to let Satan control me. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit control me. But I've got, to, I've got to get under my body. I've got to discipline myself in order to do disciplined things. Are we okay? I mean, this is, to me, this is really great. And this is a kind of control that is okay to have. Watch what Brother Bram says. Now, do you, you ever notice, he said, whoa. Whoa. Wrong way. Do you ever notice the good things that God has given to us? A free nation, free speech. You don't, we don't really realize how quickly things will turn in other nations like Myanmar over there, where it's illegal to print Christian books. And we're, we print them in 
Laos and Cambodia there, and they bring them in in the trunk of their car into places like Myanmar because there's such an iron control other religions over those things. And for us to have free free speech here, free nation, free worship, great signs and wonders have been done. Billy Graham, Jack Schiller, Oral Roberts, many of the great ministers that's passed through the land. We say of the great ministers, or sorry, we say, well, if he belonged to our denomination, it would be different. And Brother Bram saying that's a terrible thing. Oh, we'd support that. We'd, we, we'd rejoice in that if that was part of our denomination, but they're not. He said, you men do just as contrary and you sit around and let your wife act like that and dress like that and say nothing about it. Well, you puppet, how would you ever be a preacher? How would you be a deacon if you can't control your own house? What are you going to do in the house of God? So there's a certain kind of control that God expects us as Christians to exert in the right way. Now, when this idea of control goes south then you have an unhealthy control. Now, no control, or let's say it this way. If you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, do you feel like you're in prison? Do you feel like you're in bondage? Do you feel like, ah, I wish the Holy Spirit wouldn't see this? I'd love to be able to do that, but I can't, because he's watching. If that's your idea of the control of the Holy Spirit, you got it wrong. Right? Because the Holy Spirit's type, his control is a compassionate type of control. And he's a checker. He loves to check us and make sure, hey, gone far enough there, buddy. Pull it back. Self-control or the control and discipline you have in your own house is something that should be done fairly, according to the word, always with the end view that we want to have the right outcome. We want to have the right fruits here. But the last thing is this unhealthy control. This unhealthy control, let me give you an example, okay, just so that you have an idea. Brother Branham says, this is in one of his early meetings, and he says, and the angel of the Lord came near to him. He's preaching at at a convention. And the Holy Spirit said to him, close the meeting now, eight more days to go, and turn aside to Minneapolis at once. Where else do you find that? Book of Acts. Right? Here's Philip at the, at the revival, and then all of a sudden he's taken, plucked out of there, and goes and meets the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Brother Branham says he never goes back to Samaria. God just done with him here, bring him over here. And here's Brother Branham, he's, he's got this word from the Lord, turn aside and go to Minneapolis at once. Well, I went and told the manager, and he wouldn't believe it. And he said, you tell the ministers. He said, Brother Branham, you tell the ministers. And I said... God knows how I love ministers. They're the shepherds of the flock. But there's a master of all of us, and I must listen to him. Then he says, I got in trouble in Africa one time. You're acquainted with the story, perhaps. And I said, no, I must go. Brother Baxter said, Brother Branham, you tell the ministers. So I told them, and I kind of fell ill towards me. And the Lord told us to make this for two weeks. And I said, but the Lord told me to go somewhere else. You remember the story of how Brother Branham was over in Africa there, and God had told him go to India first and then Africa, and then when he got flying over there and got with the ministers, they changed the itinerary. And, you know, Brother Branham was very upset with this, but this, listen now, the Holy Spirit's directing Brother Branham to do a certain thing. This is an inward thing that Brother Branham has going on. I'm going to close here now, so I want you to leave this thought with you. 
He's got the Holy Spirit dealing with him in his heart. But now all of a sudden he has this external thing, these ministers that are out here, and they're imposing their will on him. They're changing what it is that he feels on the inside, and it's not right. And he argues with them, and he says, no, that's not what the Holy Spirit said. And finally they've exerted such a pressure on him that he changed the itinerary. And he said, remember he took the leaves and he spread it over their feet. They stopped the car and he got out in the roadway and he took the leaves off a eucalyptus tree and he sprinkled them over their feet. And he said, we'll go on the itinerary the way you've said, but God doesn't like it. And he said a few more choice words to those ministers and they got back in the car and they went and did the itinerary that they, they had proposed and they influenced him to have. You know what that is? That's an external form of control. That's different from the internal thing that God's telling him. Okay? And that, my friend, is unhealthy control. Because it's contrary to what God is actually saying. And we've got to learn to identify what is this unhealthy external thing that happens. Now, I need you to think about this. A classic example of external control is peer pressure. When a young girl may say, well, I shouldn't wear this skirt, and all of a sudden now some of the friends say, well, everybody else does. You know what that is? That's a form of control. Guess where it's coming from? Externally. It's contrary to the truth. It's contrary to what God says. Because this girl already feels a bit of a hesitation. Now, when Brother Branham says, when you feel a doubt about something, don't do it. That's what he said. So now when you've got an external voice that's coming against something that's internally right and you fall prey to that, that's an unhealthy kind of control. We have to watch for the external control that's contrary to the Word of God. Let's say two parents are out and they have a child with them. And they have, they're out and they're rushing around and doing things, going in and out of stores. And they have their little boy with him and they're going into another store. And the little boy trips and falls and skins his knee and bangs his elbow. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first little boy to do that. And hollers because he sees a little bit of blood and rips the knee of his jeans. And when little boys or girls see blood like that, it's like Hiroshima Nagasaki. Right? They think they are nigh unto death when that happens. And so they'll holler and scream. Now, if, if the parents say, oh, don't cry. That didn't hurt. Don't you worry about that. You're just making the scene. You're just trying to get attention. You know what that is? That is something from the outside that is negating what that child feels. Now, there are drama queens Right? There are kids who will ham it up and they'll, ha 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 Is anybody looking? Ha 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 I know, they're drama queens. But there are cases where kids genuinely hurt or kids are afraid or kids are genuinely scared of something, uh, been shocked by something, and the parents will say, you Don't cry. Boys, don't cry. Don't stop that. You don't feel that way. That's not really true. Don't worry about that. You're just making a scene. You're trying to get attention. And when we accept little boys who are two and three years old don't really have the maturity to stand up and say, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, do you want my knee? 
Do you want my knee? Because if you don't think this hurts, hey, take my knee for about five minutes. I mean, that's what I'd say. But when somebody, when somebody <clears throat> tries to change externally a description of what's really happening internally, when you know what's happening internally is right, because that's where the Holy Spirit lives, then that can be an unhealthy form of control. How about a wife who tries to externally change everything a man is thinking? And if he resists that, he's got quite a price to pay because she feels she has a right to how he feels. You know what that is? That's an unhealthy form of control that is designed to pull that man out of his place and let her be the boss. Let's stand to our feet. Now, you didn't think I was going to go there at all. I'd just say this, that in crossing over the river, there are three things you've got to do. You've got to keep your eye on the Word, and you've got to practice holiness. You've got to live holy, holy, and you have to be all in. And in the process of doing that, the Holy Spirit is looking for things in us that he does not want to see over there. Now, I will tell you something. God does not want to see an element of control as a controller in a minister where he uh, lords or dictates over the people. That's not the kind of minister that God wants over his bride. You know what he wants? He wants a shepherd. And he wants a shepherd who knows that I'm really not the one who's in control. He's in control, like Cyrus had to learn. No matter... No matter how good you are at your job, no matter how great a guy you are, you know what? You are what you are by the grace of God, and after all, he's the one who's in control. So therefore, God wants us to think about this whole element of control. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. But it's just burning on my heart. And we use this analogy of the crossing of the river so that we can get a sense of what God is actually doing. If, if God wanted me to you know, give my uh, Xbox up, whatever that is, if God wanted me to give my games and toys up, and you know, things that are unhealthy and not edifying, give those up, hey, no problem, I can give you that. I can, I can give you that. But it's a harder thing for me to give you something that I got ingrained in my mind, in my heart, my personality. And for us to pray sincerely and say, Lord, search my heart. Know my thoughts today. And if there's any wicked way in me, Lord, uncover it and take it out. I will guarantee you God's going to invite you into that process. He's not going to just reach down when you're asleep and just put his hand in there and take out that uh, control or that jealousy or pride. He's not going to do that. He's going to confront you with it because he wants you to put the sword to that. He wants you to lay it down.
just like we want him to be mature as he goes out in the world on his own. No one's going to go out and make that happen. He's got to make that happen. He's got to draw the boundaries. When, when his co-workers say, hey, let's go to the bar afterwards or whatever else. Hey, no, I got boundaries. I got standards here. And you know what? That's going to happen. And mom and dad are not going to be there. But he's what well, we want him. It's got to come from within, right? Got to come from down deep somewhere in there and says, no, that's not the way I live. That's what's got to happen. A boy reaches over and wants to touch a girl and hold her hand and they're not engaged or married or anything else. She's got to say, even though the feelings are all there, well, he loves me and if I don't do this, he won't love me. But if she's got a proper standard in place, you know what? No external power is going to change what's inside here. And you know what? You've got to have it. Because I ain't going to be there to give it to you. Your mom and dad's not going to be there to give it to you. You've got to have it. And that's what a new birth is all about. Matt, play something I can sing so we can sing and I'll stop. Consume me, Lord, with the fire of your spirit. Consume me, Lord, and make me
Because, Lord, we know that believers love to hear how to do what makes them stronger. How to do what makes them ready for the inevitable change of our body. Lord, I just pray that you would align us with the order of the leaving of the bride of Christ. We want to know, Lord, where we should be and what we should look like. We want to be dressed right. We want to be holding our heads high and not in defense. Lord, just come among us, I pray. Speak to our hearts. Dig deep. Change us. Fashion us that we might look like you. Lord, we just want to say that we love you. and We believe, Lord, that you want to control us because you want us to be happy. You want us to be content in the world we're going to. So, Lord, have your way. We thank you, Lord, for how you've answered prayer in the lives of so many people, Lord, and so many of our saints now back home and doing better. Thank you, Lord, so much. Thank you, Lord, for helping Brother Joe, helping him get through that procedure today. Lord, we believe one day he'll stand back here in this assembly giving you thanks, praise for all you have done. Bless his dear wife. Bless every family under the hearing of my voice. And we'll give you thanks and praise until we meet again. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And amen. As you go tonight. I love you, Lord. And I Be